We're back uh, to the series that we started a little bit ago, um, uh, the role of men and women in the church. Nick Anderson and I are co-teaching this series, and this is the third lesson in that teaching. In that series, it took two weeks break. Uh, on the last Sunday of June, we considered uh, gender issues, and then last Sunday we considered uh, uh, the Christian origins of the United States. So we turn to it today, and uh, we are going to be looking at uh, two passages that have raised questions in people's minds regarding practice in churches, and uh, they are, they are, and they are passages that understood correctly are very helpful to, to the way that we worship God as man and as woman, as male and female. Uh, so the two passages are. 1 Corinthians 11, starting verse 2 through 16, and then 1 Corinthians 14, just uh, three verses there, 33 through 35. I'd like to read those with you and then um, jump into the lesson. So first Corinthians, we'll start with 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, reading through verse 16. So this is Paul writing to the church at uh, Corinth. And he says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered... This honors his head, but every woman who prays for or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from a woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought, not, ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent or woman, nor woman of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man... Even so, man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a man has long hair, it is, if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. And if you didn't think this passage was uh, uh, controversial enough, just turn to chapter 14, and starting at verse 33. And I think it's important that we start with verse 33 in order to understand this. what's going on here. A lot of people start in verse 34. The apostle says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the church. 
for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. All right, so might as well just deal with both of them, right, in, the, in one uh, lesson. But one thing we need to keep in mind is this, that God in His goodness and wisdom that made humanity male and female, and maleness and femaleness mark everything we do, including our roles in the church of Jesus Christ. Everything that we do, we do it as male or female. It's something that we can't uh, divest. In um, the first lesson, we look at the 15 statements uh, gleaned from for, uh, Genesis 1 through 3, and you can go to our uh, church uh, to our website and see that they there uh, what those statements are. And then uh, in the, the second lesson, Nick uh, looks at some patterns from the Old Testament uh, that informed us about how God has established uh, the relationship between male and female in the among His people and also in uh, in society. And then he also looked at the, the Gospels and how Jesus approached. Uh, the, the idea of male and femaleness and interaction between them. And uh, those are also on our, those uh, seven items are also on our site. You can go there and take a look at that. Now, as we come to 1 Corinthians 11, this is easily the hardest passage to understand in the book because Paul plays on words quite a bit. He uses ambiguous words and he means something by it to one point and even in the same verse, he changes how he's using those particular words there. But the principles taught in it are clearer than we may be willing to admit. Uh, we are calling this lesson of heads and hair. That's the, uh, the, the, the title for it. It's interesting that, that Paul starts in verse 2 with a praise to the church of Corinth. If you read 1 Corinthians uh, up to this point... You think, man, that church is full of trouble, full of problems. And Paul starts here by praising them for their obedience. And what that tells us is that though there are lots of problems, some of these problems were uh, localized within a segment of the congregation. They were not systemic problems. But once we get to chapters 11 through 14, it seems like Paul is addressing the the problems that are systemic in the whole congregation, not localized, not just a group or a faction in the church that's holding to that. They are now, uh, all of them are involved in that. And the, the, the particular issue in chapters 11 through 14 is that they were struggling with several aspects of the worship of God, starting with the idea that we worship God as men as, and, and women. We don't worship God apart from that of who, we, who God has made us. And, and the, the real issue of this, pa- of this passage is, is worship. Now, this passage is about head covering, it is about praying, it is about prophesying, and we'll talk about all these things as we go on in my study. But on a more fundamental level, this passage is about worshiping God distinctively as a woman and worshiping God distinctively as a man. And, and I, I don't know if we all have thought about that, that uh, there is a difference in the way that we relate to God or worship Him as we worship Him as a man and as a woman. It's not a subjective difference either. It's supposed to be true of all men. It's supposed to be true of all women as well. 
So there is such a thing as God-appointed masculinity and God-appointed femininity. And it's not just cultural. It's, there's God-appointed masculinity and God-appointed femininity. And as I hope to show you, there are fundamental characteristics instituted by God that a man should exhibit and others that women should exhibit. It's not just all culture, cultural, that God speaks about what it means to be male, male and what, God, what it means to be female. So, I hope we can understand this passage, these two passages this morning. And I want to challenge, as we do that, I want to, to challenge any thinking that has been con- contaminated by uh, either feminism, second and third wave feminism, and by the current rise, as, as Truman says, the current rise of the modern self, uh, our views of self and identity. And I think that we, we because we, are, we don't live life thoughtfully, and I mean that we don't engage everything that's going on, sometimes we just drink of it and don't uh, analyze what it is that we're interacting with, we even we get contaminated by things that are not biblical. It seems that what led Paul to write this particular passage to the church in Corinth was the widespread belief in that, in that church that the gospel had completely eliminated any differences in function between men and women. That seems to be the, the, the impetus for the writing of this passage. They had heard the great truths that Paul uh, wrote in Galatians, for example, where Paul says in Galatians 3, 26-29, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And it's true that the gospel transcends ethnic barriers. The gospel transcends gender. The gospel transcends the social economic uh, conditions. The identity of a person uh, is irrelevant to who she, who she is, who she, he is, as far as their race, their social status, their gender. is irrelevant to his or her justification because it only depends on Christ. And that, we say amen to that. That God doesn't justify people because they are male or because they are female or because they are Americans or Brazilians or because they are rich or poor or free or slave. He justifies people because of Jesus Christ. But what Corinth seemed to have done is that they seemed to have grabbed hold of this glorious concept and were concluding that since being a man or a woman is irrelevant to our justification, to our being declared righteous in the sight of God, for, to our, what we usually call to our being saved, then it is also irrelevant for everything else in life. And Paul never meant that. God never meant that. And what, he, what we get from reading... 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, is that men were doing what had been designed by God to be a characteristic of femaleness, and women were doing what God had appointed to be characteristic of maleness in, in, in that context of the Corinthian church. So they assumed that the gospel made life gender neutral. And that's not the case. And this idea was manifest itself in the way that they Worship God. So Paul teaches that the gospel does not eliminate the functional differences between man and woman, 
because they are not the result of sin. Those functional differences are not the result of sin. They are, the, they are the divine design in creation. And we have to, make a, 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 we have to remember that, that the different functions were established before sin entered the world. They are not the result of sin. All right, so we come then to the first ambiguous term that Paul uses is the term head. Uh, if you look at verse 3 of chapter 11, Paul says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Uh, there are many ways that scholars have suggested that this word had be understood. Now, when you live in an academic world where in order to get a PhD, you have to write something novel, something that hasn't been written about before, you end up with all kinds of ideas that may not be that accurate. But we can, we can bring all these ideas into two basic interpretations of the word head. The word head, some suggest, means the source as the head of a river, where the river comes from. Or some suggest that head means authority, as in the head of the state. You see the difference how those two, two use of the word head? One means source, but says nothing about authority. My when you say the head of the state is the person who has authority over that uh, state, province, country, and so on. And though evangelical feminists, and actually there are those, and there's even a, a society of evangelical feminists, have tried to argue that the, world had, the word head here means source instead of authority. It really means authority, if you're going to let the scriptures define it for us. Notice that in this, the hierarchy, in this structure that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, the man and woman relationship is compared to the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. You notice that? that? That Paul goes on to talk about these relationships in light of the relationship in the Trinity. And in, in other places, like in Ephesians 1, Christ is called the head of the church, which there, the, the idea of source doesn't work. And so it, there, without any doubt, it means authority over the church and the church to submit to him. And we find that in Ephesians chapter 5 as well, where Christ is again talked about as being the head of the church. And because of that structure, the wife is supposed to submit to the husband her head. So again, the idea of authority is there. So Paul then starts by emphasizing that the different roles of men and women as far as authority and submission go have to change, have not changed on account of the gospel. Those, the, 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 the God-appointed differences in role, in function, continue because they are not the result of sin. They are the, the result of creation. And this relationship between man and woman actually reflects the perfect relationship in the Trinity, in the, what's called the economic trinity, when the, the Bible describes the different functions in the Godhead. The Father is the eternal begetter. Uh, the Son is eternally begotten. And the Spirit is eternally genera generated or sent by the Father and the Son. And each one has a function and submit to each other. And so if that's the comparison, then we can't say that 
this, this thing that Paul is addressing about male and femaleness is the result of sin, since the pattern he uses is the Trinity himself, then there's no sin in that. Any questions about the word head before we continue? Mike? I don't think you said it was the other interpretation was the head or the sword. Correct. Because that removes the idea of authority. Is where things come from. Like the spring of the river is the head of the river. That's where the river comes from. So the idea, so you can't, they, they have to go to extra biblical writings in Greek to justify that. Because if you go to the biblical literature, you can't justify that. But the whole idea is to try to remove the idea of a head being the authority. It, so that you have an egalitarian relationship instead of a complementarian relationship. There. Any other questions? Tilly? You said that the, the wolves were not the result of sin, but I, I'm just I, wondering about the verse in First Timothy where it says it was because the woman was first deceived. But that's a different, just talking about something different, right? Not just simply worshiping God but exercising authority and teaching in the church there in 1 Timothy. But he first says, though, if you continue saying, and the woman's created, the man's created first and the woman's created second in that same passage. So it does ultimately ground itself in creation. Anything else? All right. Okay, now we come to more uh, ambiguous language and it has to do with the words for man and husband, and woman, and wife. I believe that if you have the ESV, you're going to find the words husband and wife throughout that chapter. And as I read from the New King James, you have the word man and woman. And why is the difference? Well, the difference is that in the original language, you have it's one word. It's the same word for husband and man. And the context decides, it defines how you should translate in the same word for woman or wife. And the context dictates how you're going to translate it into the, the receiving language, in our case, in English. So the question we have to ask is, is this. Is Paul saying that every woman is to submit to every man and every man is to have authority over every woman? Or is he talking about the husband and wife relationship? I'm going to tell you that I think is the husband-wife relationship that he's talking about here, not every man and every woman. The reason for that is that Paul uses the relationship between Adam and reason, <laughs> Adam and Eve, as the reason for the way that man and woman should relate. If that, because that's the relationship that's used in this pattern, then I would uh, I conclude then that, that he's talking about the husband-wife relationship. It would be proper to then translate. Uh, most of the places there as husband and as wife. If you look at verses 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians 11, he uses the language of Genesis 2, 18-24 to describe that relationship, which is the relationship between the husband and wife. And his language also parallels what he says in Ephesians concerning husbands and wives. So I think it's, it's better for it to understand that what he's talking about is the relationship between the husband and the wife in worship and the submission and the authority is in that relationship. So he addresses husbands and wives because that's where the most observable problem was. 
But what he says about masculinity and femininity will apply to every man and every, and every woman. The principle applied to every man and every woman. And so uh, primarily talking about the husband and wife relationship, the woman is not to be submissive to every man, and the man does not have authority over every woman. That's not what the Bible teaches. Any questions on that? All right, so then we continue trying to figure out what these words mean. What is the head covering? It doesn't get any easier as we keep on trying to figure out what these uh, uh, words are. Uh, Paul says that when the husband prays and prophesies in the church, he must not cover his head. In verse 4, he says it is disgraceful, a disgraceful thing for him to cover his head. You can read that in verse 4. He also says that when the wife prays and prophesies in the church, she must cover her head. And in verse 5, he says, he says it is a disgraceful thing for her to have her head uncovered. This is a side note here. The, uh, by regulating, you notice here that Paul is regulating the way that woman, a woman should pray in church. You see that, right? It says, pray this way, don't pray that way. By doing that, by regulating how the woman should pray in the gathering of the church, he condones it. Right? Does this logic make sense to you? Okay. We will see what it means by women be silent in the church when we get to chapter 14, hopefully uh, a little later today. But whatever chapter 14 means, it doesn't require absolute silence of the woman in church. Okay. All right. I think that it's what Paul means, what Paul's talking about here, but when he talks about head covering, is... Head covering, like a veil or a shawl, or if you go to a, a, a somewhat secular uh, Muslim culture, the hijab, something that covers the head but does not cover the face. Uh, now, some have suggested that the covering is long hair because of verse 15. If you look at verse 15, there Paul says... But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. The problem with interpreting that, whatever verse 15 means, it doesn't make sense to say that head covering throughout the passage means hair. And the reason I say that is, if hair was intended, then Paul would be saying that the husband should have his head shaved because it is disgraceful for him to have his head covered. In verse 4. So if, if the woman's covering is hair, then by definition, the man would have to shave his head because he is not supposed, in the first century Corinthian context, pray with his head covered. Yet Paul just says that he should not have long hair in verse 14. It doesn't say that he has to shave. So to pray and prophesy, that is to worship God with her head uncovered, it's shameful, Paul says, to the wife and is dishonoring to her husband in verses 5 and 6. Uh, it says in verse 5, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Just an example there in verse 5, the word head is used in two different ways in that one 
same verse. One to mean her literal head, and the other one to mean her head, uh, the authority over her. So what Paul is saying is that if you're going to worship without a head covering, you might as well shave your head. That's, that's what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians to the Corinthians in the first century. That's what he's saying to the women there. That would be a shameful thing to shave your head because in Corinth, it would mean that you either were a prostitute, because all prostitutes were required because they were, they were um, religious prostitutes associated with the temple in town, and their order required shaving of their heads, or you're trying to be like a man. That's, that's what the, the first century shaving your head in Corinth would have meant. And the reason for the wearing of the head covering is the way that God created humanity, Paul says. So he, gra- he, gra- he grounds that in creation, the creation order as well. If you look at verses 7 through 10, Paul says, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, Paul's not saying that the woman was not created in God's image. By being created for man, she automatically possesses the image of God, as all humanity does. And Eve was created to, for Adam to be his helper and companion. And the head covering is a symbol of that creative design. And says that's the case of because of the angels. And I have no idea what that means. But it's not germane to the argument of the passage here. And I see some women starting to wiggle on their seats and getting nervous about what I'm going to say next, and, and so on. Um, we need to ask ourselves, because this passage is in the Bible, right? So we can't just ignore it. Should the women in the church wear head coverings? And the answer cannot be, no, because I don't like it. That cannot be the answer. Does it make sense? Because the Bible talks about it. We need to figure out what it means. Well, the answer I'll give is this, only if they want to, because this passage does not require them to do so, and I'll try to explain that so you can relax now. Okay. Wearing a head covering was what, the, what women did in the first century, Corinth, to display their femininity. Not to wear a head covering in that context was equivalent to shaving her head. In turn, that was equivalent to trying to be like a man or a prostitute. Wearing a head covering is the, is the culturally attached display of the principle that women are to worship God like women. And that's why Paul says, that's how you display femininity in this culture, and that's how we need to worship God then. The gospel has not limited the different functions of gender uh, in each gender, the gospel freed us to fulfill our roles as men and as women. And so women are honored in the sight of God by looking like woman, women, and some of it is culturally determined. I hope you're okay with that. I'm going to use the S word that we hate in Reformed circles. Do you know what the S word? I'm not even asked because I want you to adventure in some guests here. This is situational. Yeah. <laughs> the idea of femininity and masculinity is culturally related, thus situational. 
Right? Not subjective, but situation. There's a difference between subjective. Subjective is what you think is true in, in, of you, in you, and somehow that should be for everybody else. Situation means that that's how, at, this, at one particular age, something is seen. Right? So, um, in our culture, head covering is not really the way that this idea is demonstrated. Uh, it's not really the idea of femininity. It is not conveyed by head covering in our culture, but there are other ways to do that. And I'm not going to try to enumerate what they are now. But the bottom line is, is this. The bottom line is that it brings glory to God and honor to her husband when a woman looks and acts like a woman. When you look at her, and there is no doubt she is a woman. And we, are, we live in a culture where that has, uh, for both genders, has gone like this. Now, you, I don't, if you find yourself trying to figure out, is that, uh, you, know, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, that's, that's not what God intended. And don't, don't miss the point that Paul makes here about man too. Look at verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? And my sons are starting to kind of shift in their, in their seat, and so is Ezra. Um, the point is this. Men are to look manly. Okay? Not like sissies. This is not to be the source of legalistic rules concerning length of hair. The Bible doesn't give us that. The same way that short hair, for, short hair for women is not prohibited, long hair for a man is not prohibited. The point is, women need to look like women and men need to look like men. It teaches the idea that a man acts like a man and looks like a man. That's that's simple concept. Very basic that we try to com, uh, to complicate. And, and it's important that we notice that these are functional differences between men and women, not essential differences. Do you, do you understand the difference between essence and function? Essence is who you are. Essay. Of your being. Uh, function is what you're called to do. Your role in life. We have been trained by our culture to understand differences in roles as differences in worth. Your worth is found in your role. Not in your identity in the image of God and a follower of Jesus Christ. We are tempted to think that if the husband has authority over the wife, then it is better than then he is better than she is. Husbands, a little surprise for you. You're probably not better than she is. You're not essentially better than she is. We are the same. And to think that you're better than your wife just because God has granted you authority over the family then you miss the point that God is making here, and you miss the point of God, who God is. Paul says that God the Father and God the Son are equal in worth, power, and glory, and yet the Son submits to the Father, and the Father has authority over the Son. That's the pattern that is given to us for our relationship as husbands and wives. If a man thinks that he is better than a woman because he is given authority, he really does not understand the gospel. As, as, as serious as that. The man was given authority to serve, not to claim glory for himself. His leadership is to be the leadership of a servant leader. Remember what Jesus said? This is how the rulers of the world rule. But that's not us. 
He says in Mark 10, 45, I do not come to be served, but to serve. And that's our pattern of authority. And this, and this doctrine has certainly been abused in history. But the solution is not to throw this teaching of the, of the authority of the man and submission of the wife, to throw that teaching out. Rather, the solution is to repent and follow what God says in His Word, asking Him for grace to do so. And guys, listen up. We are the worst enemies of this doctrine. Okay? When a guy who is supposed to be exercising the same type of authority as Christ does to his church either relinquishes that authority or abuses that authority, he is the one who pushes a woman being, uh, from being in love with this teaching, which is something she already struggles because as of the result of the fall. But let's look at ourselves first, man, as the, 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 the biggest breaker of this doctrine, the biggest um, uh, defacing, defacer of this doctrine. Uh, so, so instead of just saying, the woman you gave me right, did not work for Adam, it won't work for us either. All right, and Paul says, he ends the chapter saying, look, don't argue about this. What I'm, in essence, if you look at verses 15 and 16, uh, well, actually just 16, but if anyone seems to be contentious, he, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. If you're going to complain about what Paul is teaching, if you're going to create contention about it, look, this is true, this is what the churches does everywhere, you don't have a case to complain. He says the nature itself in verses 14 and 15, the order God appointed and the law he wrote in our hearts show that there is maleness and there is femaleness. Only those who love to argue, he says, will want to argue otherwise. And really there's no room for that in the church. Paul is saying that if you're going to argue against this distinction between male and femaleness in the way that you worship God, you're not arguing with Paul, you're not arguing with Tito, you're arguing with God himself. You need to be ready for that. Job tried. Didn't quite work out so well for, for him. And then in four minutes, in chapter 14, 34 through 35, um, talk about another unpopular <laughs> and generally misunderstood passage or ignored passage in the Bible. We have a tendency to do that. If we don't like what the passage says or we don't understand it, we just remove it as if it never uh, existed. So when Paul says in verse 35 that the woman to be silent in church, is he issuing an absolute prohibition or is he dealing with a particular issue that is in Corinth? Now let me say that I don't know anybody who believes that this is an absolute prohibition. They might say they believe that, but I don't, I've never met in practice anybody who believes and practices this as an absolute requirement because I've never seen a church that forbade women from singing. Right? And that's not being absolutely silent in the church. Right? So uh, it, it, that's just, I acknowledge that, that even though people may say that means absolute silence, really, I, maybe they exist, what churches that forbid women from singing. Uh, I'm not aware of any of those. And it doesn't seem to be an absolute prohibition for the following reasons. Paul addresses the wives only in this passage. What about the single women, divorced women, widows? What are they supposed to do? What is, 
was it okay for women to speak as long as they weren't married? Is that what Paul is talking about here? Um, in, in, as we saw in chapter 11, particularly verse 5, Paul regulates how women should pray and prophesy in mixed gatherings. Why, to do, why do that if they weren't supposed to speak at all? Why would Paul say, hey, when you're gathered together, women, this is how you pray alongside the man. So it is necessary to recognize that, they are, that, that, that this is not an absolute prohibition. And also there's a bit of a difference seems like, between the meeting that's going on in chapter 11 and the meeting that's going on in chapter 14. Just to, to put things in boxes in our head, we think, should think of uh, 1 Corinthians 11 as a description of our prayer meetings on Wednesday nights and 1 Corinthians 14 as a description of our Sunday uh, worship services here. The issue that Paul seems to be dealing with is one of submission, not of simply speaking the church. In verse 34, uh, the law, that is the Bible that Paul refers to, says that a wife is to be submissive to her husband. You see that in Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3. At least some of the women were doing something in the worship service that was unsubmissive. And notice in verse 33, he says, look, uh, we are supposed to do things in order. God is a God of order. Uh, he says that he, God is not an author of confusion, but of peace, as it all, in all the churches of the saints. And he's dealing with that when he talks about the woman being silent there. And because the command is to be submissive to her husband, we must assume that whatever the woman was doing was demonstrating unsubmissive to her husband. And the best explanation is that her husband, what's going on here is that the husband would get up to prophesy in the church, to preach, to, to share the word of God, with the church, and the wife would start questioning him, almost like heckling him while he was speaking. That's the situation that Paul is addressing there in Corinth. That's the unsubmissiveness of that. And you might say, oh, a wife will never do that. Well, there's plenty of examples in the history of the church of pastors' wives just laying to their husbands during the service as he's speaking and preaching. So this is not unheard of uh, in, in history. So Paul says, don't do that. If you have a problem with what your husband is saying, ask him at home. Not, don't, no. Don't really kill him in public. Don't attack him in public. Don't hackle him in public. This passage does, however, give us a general principle that we don't shed our identity as men and women when we're worshiping God. Instead, we, were, we are to worship God as men and as women in the functions that He gave us, and all those are good because it comes from a good God. It's a gift from God, and only good and perfect gifts comes from our Father, as James says. So in summary, this passage is not dictating that what type of hat you should wear or how long you should your hair should be. God is here telling you that He instituted different roles for men and for women, and these different roles are good. So we are left with a choice, as we often are. We can rejoice in the goodness of God and in His wisdom in appointing these differences in between men and women, these different roles between men and women, or we can follow what the teaching of this world is. You know, you, know, you might think that blurring the roles and making men and women almost indistinguishable is easier. But remember, remember what our Lord said in Matthew 11? We spent all year last year reading about it. 
you may think that not follow the Bible is easier. You may think that, that blurring the men and women and function is, is, is easier. To not have a distinction, to not follow the Bible says it's easier. But our Lord said that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. That's what is easier. Not following the culture that we are in. As with everything else, the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us to be men and to be women for God's glory and for our good. And that's a good thing for us. Any questions as we close? All right, so let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a God who is clear even when we make things blurry. We pray that we would submit ourselves to your word, that we would seek what is good, what is easy in the yoke of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.